0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome again, everyone. Some of you know that once a quarter on Sunday morning we do the Refuges and Precepts. This is a an ancient Buddhist activity. And the idea is um, to redirect our life. You probably have had the sense in life that it's very easy to be swept along. You know, sometimes we're swept along by what our friends want to do. Sometimes we're being swept along by our cultural values that we inherited, just being in the culture. But in different ways, we're getting swept along quite often. Even, I think, uh, when certain conditions or certain things get triggered, we can get swept along by our genetic conditioning, you know, like that fight-or-flight response. It doesn't matter that we know better, but if something gets triggered, it's like a wave. It just washes over us and drives us. So there's a lot of ways we get swept away. This is a metaphor the Buddha used a lot having, you know, spent most of his life on the flood plains of the Ganges River, that was the obvious natural disaster to have a lot of rain upriver that you're unaware of, and then in the middle of the night or sometime unknowingly, the river rises and the whole village, the town, you know, gets swept away. It's not like they had early warning systems. So... He used this, the flood, the flood of craving, in different ways in his talks. And so, once we get that, how easy it is to be picked up and swept away, we look at that and we begin to understand that mechanism. It has a lot to do with intention, the intention in the mind. Especially when intentions are unconscious you know, like how many times do we just scratch when there's an itch? It's not like we're aware of the intention, you know, lift your hand, touch the head, scratch, scratch. It's not like we're aware these intentions just happen. And you probably, even in much more consequential ways, find yourself saying something to another person that you don't remember consciously intending to do or say, but there you are saying it. Or you might even remember consciously intending not to do it, and there you are doing it. And it's because underneath the level of what we're aware of, there are a lot of intentions moving about. So part of the practice is making what's unconscious, conscious. Starting, it's not so much that things are actually in the subconscious, you know, like we learn in Western psychology, somehow not knowable. It's just, a lot of it is, we're just, the mind is superficial. It's just skimming the surface and unaware of so much that actually we could be aware of. So what we do this uh, at these quarterly uh, gatherings on Sunday morning, like we did this morning, we take refuge in, in Buddhism. We say the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the idea is to sort of, well, what does that mean? We have to make it real, something real here in our minds. What does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha? And I think what it really means is we're coming out of our life experience, having observed as much as we have observed, having learned as much as we've learned about the mind, we have some sense, maybe maybe not great sense, but we have some sense of what's skillful and what's not skillful, what activities of mind, what ways of being, ways of seeing, ways of understanding are relatively skillful, leading to ease, and what states of mind, ways of relating, views are not so skillful, lead to the heart, the mind being bound up. So to whatever degree we have a sense of what's skillful and unskillful, we have every incentive, not just once a quarter, but in every moment that's possible, to aim this life or to aim the mind or to establish a wholesome intention. We, you know, the more we look at it, look at the mind, the more we understand how it all has to do with intention. In an extreme sense, we could say this whole world that we know, like this, that we know, is the result or the expression of intention. This life isn't born out of, you know, an ovum, like we think. It's really born, this experience is born out of intention. So you've heard of karma, and the definition of karma is that intention has consequence consequences. There are consequences to intention. If there's an intentional thought or action, there will be, it, it will sort of give birth to something. We can't do something intentionally without setting something in motion. So everything we have done intentionally has led a, <clears throat> to this moment being the way that it is now. This moment is the expression of of everything that's come before, including all the intentional actions that have been played out. So when we take refuge or setting our aspiration, it really arises out of some sense that intention matters. So given that we know to, to some degree that intention matters, What would we like to intend now? What kind of motivation or intention do we trust now? Because if we don't sort of actively, mindfully participate in intentions, we'll just be expressing or acting out the cultural, genetic momentum. You know, what's what has been set in motion previously. And... You know, what's been set in motion is a lot of fear and a lot of greed and a lot of intention to disconnect, to be like, just, uh, I just want to go to sleep or just want to absorb into a good book. Back in the olden days, it was like, absorb into a good story. Tell me a story, you know, so I can get lost. I mean, not all stories. Or delusion. A lot of stories, the better stories, right? Even though it's not about this moment, as the more we open to the story, listen to the story, we realize that the story is about this, not about something else. Even though the, you know, the content may be about somebody long ago, it's really teaching me about how to be here now, how to be here, how to relate, how to open, how to know, how to be free. So, using the traditional Buddhist formula, and again, you don't have to use this, but one way or another, we all have to find a way to aim this life. Otherwise, we just keep doing what we've always done and getting what we've always got. Nothing changes unless we intentionally notice intentions. And then, in knowing the intentions, we start to learn about what's skillful and unskillful, and we start to participate in that. Because like in any moment, like now, there, there are many intentions at play in my mind, my heart now. It's even intentions like, God, I'd like to be home. Or, you know, wish I didn't have to sit cross-legged. I've been doing a lot of work at, at the house the last few days, and I just have a lot of pain sitting. I'm not used to working physically. <laughs> so, and just getting older too. And so there's lots of intentions, and the intention to give a good talk, and, you know, the intention to be liked, and the intention, who knows, you know, what I'm not conscious of. But there are, there are all these inclinations, tendencies coming out of the past that are present here in the mind. By being mindful, I can begin to recognize some of the intentions that, in a sense, are at play. And then we can water different intentions by paying attention to one and not the other. And just because one is the loudest intention, doesn't mean we have to pay attention to it. Right? I could, the loudest intention might be something like, you know, oh, I really want to speak in a way that they can understand or will be useful or i'm afraid they're not going to understand what i'm trying to say so you know getting identified with that intention could make me tight or try too hard which wouldn't help or there might be the intention just relax you know whatever your practice has delivered up until this point, that will be, you know, your talk will come out of that. It's already too late. (laughs) You know, you're not any wiser than you are. So just do the best you can with the mind or the heart you have right now. Or the short version is just relax. Now that's a different intention. So in any moment there are different intentions at play and we can begin to recognize them, and then in a sense we take refuge in certain intentions. And the more we do that, the more the mind begins to distill like what intentions we trust as being wholesome, leading to good states, like states of ease, states of love, states of freedom, states of wisdom, and what intentions inevitably lead to contracted states, heavy states, difficult states of mind. And the more we distill that and refine that, we start having values or an aspiration that we really trust. So, in Buddhism, we call this a refuge. We take refuge. And that's what these three things stand for. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, these three Pali words, Sanskrit words, they represent what human beings, in this distilling process, realize... Are trustworthy intentions. So I want to talk about that. And you don't have to call it Buddha, Dharma, or Dhamma and Sangha. But see if you, in your distillation process, you come upon the same three refuges. And this is nice to hear like what the Buddha suggests, because then as we do the process of looking at intentions, distilling what's skillful, what's unskillful, what intentions Lead to harm. What intentions lead to freedom. Then we see if they line up with what the Buddha said. So Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha as a way of aiming or aspiring means to be awake. That's what the word means. The Buddha is a a title, not a name of a person. So that was the title of Siddhartha, Gotama. He was the Buddha. He was awake. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's fine to think back 2,500 years that there was this person who had a lot of insight and could articulate what happened in his insight process in a way that's, you know the maps are still useful for us. There's nothing wrong with reflecting using that word Buddha to represent this historic person. But the important thing, is to begin to have a sense of what it is to be awake, to sort of know it enough to aim the mind, to intend to be awake. To be able to find that intention, not just, you know, once a quarter when you come together as a community and we say, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, or well, you do that, like I, I do that every morning at the beginning of my sit. I go through the three refuges, saying them three times, which is the traditional way. And I contemplate what I mean when I say I take refuge in the Buddha. I usually do it in the Pali. Buddhaang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Buddha. And, um, and then I take some, a few seconds and I contemplate. Okay, I'm taking refuge in being awake. Like, how about this moment? Not like, later, oh yeah, later today I want to be awake. No, because that's called intending to postpone. And we get really good at it. Well, I'll do it later. Yeah, I'll do it later. It's like, oh yeah, I know how to do this, I'll do it later. That's all we do, is we plan to do it later. So when we contemplate, when we take refuge in the Buddha, then take some time and find that intention right then and there. Okay, like now. So, to whatever degree you already have this value, being awake, the mind... So, initially, we don't even know what that means. Like, well, I'm already awake. But are we awake to that? It's like, because as human beings, you know, or any living being, really, there is some awareness. You know, that's sort of the definition of life, is there is this sensitivity to the environment. But is there this reflective awareness that this is being known? So this is what we mean by wakefulness or wake awakenedness, is what Ajahn Simaito says sometimes, wakefulness. So we're just recognizing now, like in this moment, that the knowing is here already. There isn't anybody like me who has to be awake. So one of the qualities of wakefulness of Buddha that we're waking up to, that we're noticing and then taking refuge in and remembering in as many moments of our day as we can, is this, it's really a mystery. But like that this is being known, not I'm knowing this. But whatever this is, and for each of us in this moment, this is being known. This subjective experience of knowing is like this. So that's taking, now we're taking refuge in it, meaning it's like we're seeing it initially, maybe not strongly because we don't have a lot of direct experience, but over time more and more faith, that taking refuge in this wakefulness is liberating. is skillful and liberating. But it's not easy to remember. Life is so juicy and difficult and dramatic. How often are we inclined to notice this wakefulness quality that's always here in life? It's almost like there is some light bulb the Buddha said this once, he said, the mind is naturally radiant and clear. However, this is obscured by visiting defilements. Right? Meaning, the way the mind gets caught up in drama. Thinking, worrying, planning, remembering, comparing, judging, wondering, fantasizing. It gets lost in these activities and it forgets the wake, awakeness That's here and now. This bright, effortless, that's one of the keys to recognizing knowing, is that it's effortless. Do you have to make any, in any personal way, do you have to make an effort (coughs) to know, for the light bulb to be on, for knowing to happen? Can you shut it off? Like, stop knowing. Can you stop knowing? We can't. Isn't that interesting? It's not really personal. So, initially, it seems a little obscure, like, yeah, maybe it's interesting, but what does it have to do with happiness and suffering? Which is what I'm interested in. Well, initially, you just have to, you have to practice, like, check it out. Like, what, what would happen if you took refuge in this wakefulness as many moments of the day as possible? how would your life then be different than doing what you would normally do? Getting absorbed in, distracted by, caught up in, you know, the different things that come and go in your life, like a normal day would be for us. But from the Buddha point of view, Buddhist point of view, or the Buddhist point of view, this wakefulness, taking refuge in the Buddha, it sets up insight you can't help but learn. Or a better way of saying this, you can't help but see, the mind can't help but see what it hasn't seen before. And it's the not seeing what the mind hasn't seen that leads to suffering, that we continue the cycles of suffering. This, with the Buddha called samsara, these almost endless cycles of suffering. And From the Buddhist cosmological point of view, it's not like, yeah, there were those cycles of suffering when I was a teenager, and then my 20s, and my 30s, and my 40s, and now my 50s. No, he has this vast, beginningless view, saying that we have cried more tears from birth to death, from birth to death, than there is water in the four great oceans. So That's a powerful image, cycling through birth and death always sort of missing this refuge in wakefulness and instead being swept along by distractedness, which is really the opposite of wakefulness. Caught in the dramas of being a human being or being whatever kind of being we might have been. Caught in the dramas, caught in the the this and the that and the pleasantness and the unpleasantness and the struggling and missing this very subtle but omnipresent truth of wakefulness. It's like uh, another image that's used is how fish. Of course, we don't really know how it is to be a fish, but how fish don't know what water is because it's so omnipresent. You know, so it's a we can just imagine that. Or like another way, more personal, more directly to our experience, like there is the space, whatever the space is, in which our lives unfold, right? But how often in your life have you reflected, intuitively reflected, on the presence of space? We don't. It doesn't occur to us to notice, oh, this, my life, my experience right here, it's happening in the space. You can call it the space of here and now, or you can call it whatever space you want. But without that space, there's no experience to be known, right? We need space for experience to arise. But we don't notice the space. We notice what arises in the space, like the sights that arise in the space, or the sounds that arise in space, or the thoughts that arise in the space. But we don't get interested in the space. So this is what we mean by taking refuge in Buddha. We're learning to take refuge in something we have a very strong habit of ignoring. The space of awareness. That's one phrase that I like. And this is how you can use it. So when you take refuge in the Buddha, if you don't want to use that foreign word, you can just use, I take refuge in the space of awareness. The field of awareness. I take refuge in the here and now. This luminous here and now, because whatever happens in the here and now, it's known. It's so amazing. It's like, you know it. You didn't try to know it. So there's this profound sensitivity that just knows. No way to shut it off. So we practice taking refuge in it. And then when we start intuiting that, taking refuge in the Buddha, then we start to play, to discern and respect this taking refuge in Dhamma. is the Pali word, Dhamma. The Sanskrit version is Dharma, which is more common in our culture now. We hear the word Dharma a lot. The Dhamma is the Pali word. Both languages around the, came up around the time of the Buddha. And in Theravada Buddha, Buddhism, Pali is the scriptural language. And then in the later schools of Buddhism, Mahayana, and such the Sanskrit is the liturgical or the scriptural language. They're very similar. So we take refuge in Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is. Now we can't take refuge in the way it actually is without having taken refuge refuge in the Buddha, the one who knows, the knowing. Because we need this we need to have some intuitive sense of knowing in order to know the way it is because otherwise we don't know the way it is we know the way we think it is so we have to first learn to trust that things are just naturally being known and that that knowing is can be effortless because we have to put down doing in order for knowing to be really pure when I'm trying to know who you are or trying to know what this experience is, the trying itself distorts what's being known. So we don't actually know it's polluting the experience. It's only when, to some degree at least, we're taking refuge in wakefulness, just the natural, effortless knowing, open awareness, empty awareness, that then... We can have a sense of what this is. The Buddha talks about Dhamma, the way it is, ha- as having certain characteristics. So these are the telltale signs to check out in your practice. So like one of the telltale signs of seeing Dhamma, Buddha knowing Dhamma, wakefulness knowing the way that it is, is the characteristic of change or process, the process nature of experience. So like now, Buddha is here, there's nowhere else for Buddha to be, so there is wakefulness here. To whatever degree we can trust or relax into or open up to wakefulness, the wakeful quality, inherent wakeful quality of mind, we'll notice the very process nature, dynamic nature of what is being known. So in a sense, the Buddha is the ultimate subject, the knowing, and Dharma is the ultimate object, what is being known, right? So to really understand what is being known, we have to purify the knowing. And then the way we're moving in that direction, Then the objects that are being known, what really stands out about them is that they're changing, they're ephemeral, they're, uh, they're not nouns, A thing. There's something in motion. There are even some languages of some, uh, people, uh, that don't have a lot of nouns. They use more verbs. It's kind of interesting, this, uh, and we try actually in, in Dharma language, like when we're talking about a practice, we try to use that, you know, instead of naming table, You know, I'll say, you know, the table is being known. Because that's that points to the process of what's actually happening, that there is something being known. There's this activity of knowing. That's actually what's happening. Not so much that there's a table, but there is this appearance that's being known. Sadness is being known. Instead of, I'm sad, sort of that static sense of me, being sad, their sadness is being known. And then in the next moment, it's something else. Like when I know sadness in this moment, and then in the next moment, whatever's being known, even if I might call it sadness, it's not the same sadness that was known in the previous moment. It's like a, a river of change. There's always something else being known. And so we start to notice, like, you can just even, resting and being awake now, you'll notice that, you could say, I'm at Common Ground on Sunday night, and that has a static feeling. But actually, there's nothing static in this. It's really a dance of activity, and this, this activity is like, it's hard enough to even have a sense of what's here, let alone what was just then or what will be. And whatever this is, it's slipping through our fingers in order for the next moment to burst forth. So things are very alive, but we don't really know this aspect of experience, of objects or the way it is, unless there's Buddha knowing. When Buddha knows, we know the ephemeral, changing, very alive experience of the way it is. That's what stands out. And also that it's very impersonal, like there's no center. So even here, again, as we relax in the knowing, you can, we can notice the process. But there really isn't a center. Like you might say, no, 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 the center is right here. But that can be known too, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? That whatever you're calling the center, like me, I'm knowing this. So there is a center to this experience. But that sense of me knowing this, you can know that. So how can that be the center? There isn't anything that can't be known. That's another mystery. The subject is never known. You know, Buddha is never known. But we intuit it because objects are being known, you know, experience is being known. But we don't know the knowing. But we know it's there, right? We know there's space. I can't grasp the space, I can't prove to you there's space directly. But because this is this, we can intuit that there's space for this to happen. And it's the same dance between Buddha and Dhamma. So we're really working in practice, we're working on this integrity, learning to trust wakefulness, this uh, awake knowing, this simple, radically simple knowing, trusting it more and more, And it reveals Dhamma, like, what is the experience when knowing is very simple and pure? What is it to live our life from that very simple place of awareness? Not trapped by our thoughts about what's happening. Now, we're not, we don't need to stop the thinking. Thinking inherently isn't inherently a problem. The problem is when the mind fixes on the thought, and sort of lives out of the thought, like, I'm at Common Ground on Sunday night, and so then I'm making everything fit that idea, because it makes me feel safe, because now I have some certainty. I'm at Common Ground Meditation Center, it's Sunday night, I'm this person, my name is Mark Nunberg, 55, you know, we just go through that list. And it gives a sense of safety. But in the Buddha knowing Dhamma, there's a beautiful integrity, but there's also no ground. We lose the ground that we've become accustomed to, that our concepts, our ideas, our fixed ideas about things give us. But it, it's really this uh, liberation, right? we're liberated from what is known, from the fixed ideas. That's literally what we're liberated from. And it's a process. So, the, you know, the point of the talk tonight is really that unless we aim, it won't happen. There's an old saying, you know, uh, unless something is sought, nothing is found. We only find what is sought. So, we have to distill, like, what's relevant to find? And so, are you interested in discovering something, does it appear to be relevant, this part of the mind that we call knowing? Very few human beings, and you know, when you look at, if you went out and interviewed every one of your friends, you know, about this, very few would say, you know, I'm really interested in the knowing, the mind knowing. But But even now, just reflecting a little bit, it's really relevant. I mean, there's really no human existence without it. of any... I mean, that would make any sense. But we, we just haven't been interested in it. But so now we're saying, okay, now I'm going to be interested in it. And I'm going to create some kind of ritual to help me remember that it's relevant. That's what taking refuge means. When we do the, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it's not like tying us up to some ancient religious tradition. It's really this present moment alchemy. It's like understanding that intentions matter. So I'm intending to remember wakefulness. I'm intending to remember the way it is. The way it actually is free of my preconceived ideas. And then the third refuge is I take refuge in Sangha. Sangha is the word sometimes translated as uh, awakened qualities, beautiful qualities beautiful community, beautiful way of being together, those who know the way. These are the different ways that word is translated. And it really has to do with, in the integrity of the Buddha knowing Dhamma, this wakefulness of the heart, knowing the way that it is, then what arises from that living being in that moment is a skillful response. This is a great line from an ancient story um, from, in China, uh, uh, this particular form of Buddhism arose called Chan, later called Zen Buddhism when it went to Japan, into Korea as well. The Chan Buddhism, there were some great teachers back then, this is like 6th, 7th century, and uh, one was asked, um, what was, what did the Buddha teach his whole life long? You know, like, Sum up the teachings of the Buddha, please. And, you know, he, so the person was expe- expecting a very simple, pithy answer. And this teacher gave him this great answer. So, just imagine, for the, especially those of you who've been sort of studying Buddhism for a while, like, what would you say? And this teacher said, an appropriate response. So, that's such a great answer that the essence of this path of waking up, we call it the path of awakening, the essence of it, the sort of tell sign of it, is an appropriate response. Because in that integrity of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the awakened heart, seeing, connecting, opening to the way it actually is, what comes out of that is an appropriate response. That's where love comes from, real love, real compassion, kindness, forgiveness, fearless action, you know, whatever is appropriate comes out of the integrity of the heart being radically clear, clearly aware it's like this, seeing clearly, connecting with the way it is. Otherwise, we're in this imitative place where, okay, I want to be skillful, I want to be cool, I want to be compassionate, I want people to see me as a saint, So what should I do, you know? And we try to figure out like what the appropriate response is. But we miss. The appropriate response is never going to be something we do. It's something nature does. The appropriate response arises naturally through causes and conditions. Well, what are the causes and conditions that supports an appropriate response? It's the integrity of a mind or a heart that's radically clear, open, awake, connecting with the way it is. not adding anything and not leaving anything out. So including everything, it's like uh, one of the things about the Buddha, this wakefulness is it's all inclusive. Like when you just re- just settle back into the knowing, you don't have to do anything. It's more about trusting that the mind is knowing. You see that this knowing isn't excluding any experience. That doesn't mean that some experiences in the moment aren't more in the foreground and some might be in the background. But it's all very, it's not about a somebody deciding what's relevant in the moment. Now, in our training, especially the way I've been talking about it the last few weeks, you know, I. We talk about using an anchor like bringing the attention to the breath. And that's part of the training. It's It heals the mind to collect the attention with the breath. But this is done in a particular way. So as we settle into mindfulness of breathing, we don't need to exclude the rest of the body. Knowing the breath coming in doesn't depend on you actively not paying attention to anything. It's like, I can see the door in the corner of the room without having to exclude anything. Now, the, the scene of the door, the visual shape, form, color of the door, that, that's now in the foreground, it's sort of predominant in the knowing mind. But the knowing mind is not closing itself off to anything. So this, this, the integrity of the Buddha knowing Dhamma really sets up what we've been looking for all along because most of us are good people. In fact, we could say in all kinds of distorted ways, everybody's a good person or everybody's trying to be happy in their own distorted way. Some of us more in some moments more distorted, more convoluted in how we're trying to be a good person or be a happy person than others. But we're all doing the best we can. But instead of like, thinking there's a way to figure out how to be a happy person, what we're figuring out are what are the supporting causes for skill. So instead of trying to be skillful, we're understanding what leads to the appropriate response, to a wise response. Wise response in the sense of acting in ways that lead to the release of the heart acting in ways that lead to happiness for self and other versus acting in ways that cause us to be unhappy and cause those around us to be unhappy. And this is really what we mean by taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. We're taking refuge in these values that through paying attention in life, they've kind of grown on us. The heart begins to, like, naturally, I value wakefulness. I value including turning toward the way it is, not running from the way it is. I say yes to pain. I say yes to sadness. I say yes to joy. I say yes to whatever is here and now, because I've learned to value it. I've learned that it leads to release and to skill and to the appropriate response. So I say yes to wakefulness, I say yes to the way it is, and I say yes to all the beautiful qualities I see in my own heart and life, and I see in those around me, when people have this integrity of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And in any moment, you know, if we're lucky, somebody will be in that place, you know, and we'll see Sangha. We'll see somebody responding appropriately in that moment, and it will be an inspiration for us. And if we're wise, if we understand something about the practice, we'll see their appropriate response, and in a way we'll back up and we'll see, oh, Buddha knowing Dhamma. That's how that happened. That's how that person was so patient in that moment. They were connected. They were awake to what? They were awake to the way it was, and then that response that seemed so right on arose. It didn't arise out of nothing. It arose out of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. And without wakefulness knowing the way it was, there would not have been an appropriate response. And this is what this is the piece we keep missing, because I think, like I said a moment ago, you know, a lot of the time we really want to be skillful, we want to be a good person, but we keep you know, doing things that cause trouble for ourselves and others, despite wanting to be a good person. Because we're trying to be a good person instead of figuring out what leads to being a good person. What are the supporting causes for a skillful response? And then cultivating that intention to be awake, to turn toward, to say yes to the way it is. So in a way, Sangha isn't something we can do. Sangha arises like in a community when To some degree, those people in that community, in that moment, are Buddha-knowing Dhamma. Then you can have really beautiful moments with other people, or other animals even, not even with humans, when beings are in that place. And when beings are not in that place, you get things like Congress, you know, (laughs) where things are so incredibly divisive, and there's just so much delusion. And it's so obvious that that is not the way people get trapped. So I want to leave it here so we have a little time to speak together. You might have examples from your own life you'd like to share of these three refuges, these three values, and how you've seen them, cultivated them, what's been in the way. And of course, any questions that you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah.
0: Uh, so, what came to mind is that it's taken me, for example, a lot of years to kind of get to know the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha through um, lots of, you know, say, therapy and other kind of things I do and meditation. Um, but it feels like maybe other people that maybe didn't have certain of the same causes and, you know, and conditions when they were growing up or something have fewer their buttons get pushed less. I mean part of this seems to be like I, I like how you said, you know, some people, you know, respond so skillfully and you're like, you know, how could you how did you how did you do that? And is that the person knows the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha or whatever? But I think I, I, it seems like for some of us it just takes a lot longer to be able to kind of get to some kind of place where we are able to act more skillfully given the sort of in hole that we came
1: out of, you know, or the item, I just... Well, that's, yeah, it seems that to be sense. clear that that's right, yeah. And so we can study that, like we can look at people and we can look at our own situation and we can sort of get a sense of what's at play. Some people, like what you'd want to look at, like those people that seem to be better at having an appropriate response, then... You know, you'd want to observe them carefully and see when conditions are more challenging, do they still come up with an appropriate response pretty consistently? And if you observe them consistently and see that, that appropriate response time and time again, then over time you can conclude they know what the heck they're doing. You know, they have some wisdom. They would be a good role model, you know. Other people you observe And you see that, oh yeah, they were really, they they had a very appropriate response in that moment, but now I'm seeing all these not-so-appropriate responses in other moments. And then you say, oh, well, that appropriate response arose because the conditions were such that a lot of their sort of delusion, a lot of their conditioning wasn't being triggered in that moment, like their fear wasn't being triggered, their uh, greed wasn't being triggered. So it was relatively easy for that integrity of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Just like it's relatively easy, when we go to a nice, quiet room, sit in a comfortable way, just with the body sensations, it's relatively easy for Buddha to know Dhamma in that situation, for the mind to be relatively awake, trusting the way it actually is in the body or with the breath. And to have beautiful qualities of ease and acceptance and patience and clarity arise. So in that moment, you know, all three could be there, but then we go out into the world, you know, we have to interact with other human beings and jealousy gets triggered and fear gets triggered and, you know, who knows what else gets triggered and it's not so easy. So sometimes people just have matured spiritually and very little triggers them. Because whatever we throw at them, or whatever life throws at them, disease, loss, insults, you know, they don't take it personally. They just see it Buddha knowing Dhamma. It's just wakefulness, seeing things as they are. It's just part of that river of causes and conditions. Nothing's personal. It's just the movement of nature. Right, but I guess my point is that,
0: I guess my own personal opinion is that you either get some of that really good foundation in a childhood where you're really nurtured, or you didn't get that, and then it takes you a lot more time to actually try to search it out um, to become more
1: skillful. Yeah, that's probably true to some degree. And people come into the world in different places too, you know, with certain temperaments. So it's not just where you're born, you know, and the culture and the family that you're born into, and the color of your skin and the wealth of your parents and the genetics and, you know, so many things are at play. But the important point is wherever we end up, this practice makes a lot of sense. So even if you've got, like, everything going for you, it makes sense to do this practice. And even, even if you have, you have a real, not such a fortunate birth, not born in a good place, you know, or whatever, this practice is really good. And the point is, we all have incentives to do the best we can in the
2: practice. Yeah,
1: first Lewis and then you.
2: I, I keep noticing um, that at times you're using words that we're all familiar with, but you're using them in a different way. And I keep getting caught up with uh, how you use refuge cause, you know, the question that comes up is refuge from what? What? Almost like it sort of sets the stage for some avoidance. Some avoidance? Avoidance. Yeah. But um, that's true. Yeah. I mean, we are
1: avoiding getting swept away. Like, the, the one thing that is appropriate to be afraid of is to keep doing what we've always done, getting what we've always gotten. So, that that's an appropriate fear. And the Buddha wasn't afraid to paint pictures to some of his students to really bring up fear, like, is that what you want, to be swept along, just going for the next sense treat, the next pleasant sense experience, as if that's going to lead somewhere. So, it's appropriate. there is an appropriate place for fear.
2: Well. I guess, from my life experience, I keep telling myself that there's no safety. That there's no place to hide from the things that threaten us. Our sense of, you know, this. Um, And that the challenge is to just, in a way, embrace that. And I guess lately I've I've been thinking about uh, what I call me is a part of some larger thing that's becoming and manifesting. And I've been conditioned to think about me as this individual who has this particular identity in a particular society which tells me all kinds of things that have really nothing and if I could keep giving myself permission to just
1: be here and somehow accept what is. Yeah. No, no, that sounds right. I, I would just change the language a little bit. Like, to say that there's no escape is maybe a little too much. Like, you don't actually know that there's no escape. What you have learned, though, and this is how I changed the language, is that Running from the pain of life, running from the difficulty of life doesn't help. So your, your, your sort of intention to stay put and to open and to accept sounds really wise. But I wouldn't say that there's no escape because you might find that in not running from it that you realize it's okay. So this is a really important teaching about dukkha, what we call dukkha or stress or the unsatisfactoriness of life, challenges of life, limitations of life. Running, escaping doesn't lead to release. Embracing leads to release. So there is a release. I mean, the Buddha teaches, some of us have experienced, there is a release from suffering. We have moments where there are still the limitations of life. They haven't changed. There's still birth and death and everything else. But there is no problem in the moment. So we want to really let those moments have an impact in the mind. Oh, that kind of happiness, that kind of release, right in the middle, you know, there's still the society the way that it is. And the confusion in my mind and the condition, the not-so-skillful condition patterns in my personality are still the way they are. But in this moment, there is a release from suffering. Meaning, in this moment, there's no part of the mind having a problem with anything. So that's what arises naturally, unpredictably, but naturally from the embracing. When the embracing is really 100%, 100%, and not even a strategy, but just part of the bones, you know, just to, just to embrace the moment, the Buddha knowing Dhamma, then something beautiful comes out of that. So initially, we want to embrace, but we don't want to tell ourselves there's no release because we don't know. And we have people who say there is a release. And so we should just stay open. We don't want to believe them as like that's true because he said it or she said it, but we want to like stay open to that possibility. I think somebody here had a comment. I'm, I'm Terry. Terry. Uh, something I just recently had in this talk is brought to my
0: attention again is communicating with someone who doesn't practice of being awake and seeing how it is now. So
1: she said, somebody who doesn't practice this, so you're in, in community with someone like that.
0: Right. Um, so, how do I know? I feel like I'm being mindful and I'm, um, I'm doing the right thing. Uh, I'm speaking skillfully or I'm not speaking, acting mm-hmm. Um How do I know if it's skillful? if they still act defensively, because they are familiar. Yeah. Am I acting so or am I being just just feel self-rages? I don't know.
1: <laughs> but can we know? Well, we can, because we just keep observing. You know, first of all, Buddha knowing Dhamma doesn't mean there won't be mistakes. It just means that if there are mistakes, they're going to be known by Buddha knowing Dhamma the wakeful quality, knowing the way it is. So that's what I said at the beginning. It's like it sets in motion a lot of learning. Inevitably, you can't help but learn. So just to keep doing what you're doing, you will transform how you are in that situation with that person. So instead of trying to figure out how to be with that person, just keep taking refuge in being awake, being really profoundly naturally sensitive, to the way it is, to everything, including everything. What you see, what you feel in your heart, all the different. So just like uh, Lewis was saying, we're embracing the moment. We're embracing how impossible it is to figure out how to be skillful with this person because we don't know everything. But what we can do is we can take refuge in being awake to the way that it is and appreciating the beautiful qualities that come when there's a real synergy of wakefulness connecting with the way it is. And we just have a moment where being skillful was just natural. you know. And then we're, we're just making the connection that that skillful response came because the heart was radically open to the way that it was. It wasn't strategic, but it was lawful. And we have to end it here, oh. sorry, Anne. say, 30. So we'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words... Time for one breath together. So you might experiment at home, taking refuge. Don't worry about the traditional formulation. You can just take two, three minutes. That's all it takes. And just reflect on the deeper values like over the course of your life what values seem to really be resonant in the heart as being good. And then by just remembering them you're aiming your life in that direction. Remembering that they're skillful or that they're good is how you strengthen that intention. It will just more likely arise, more likely be seen. So I encourage you to Play with that before your sits or any time, maybe when you get up in the morning or before you go to bed at night. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together, as always.
2: This talk, like
0: all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.